0: Welcome to the Media Sport Podcast Series and a special episode on the Tokyo 2020 or 2021 Olympics and Paralympics. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins from Monash University. I'm still in lockdown in Melbourne and Australia, and I'm still speaking with you via Zoom. Before I introduce our special guest for this episode, I want to thank someone who listeners do not hear, but whose labour and skills help make this series possible. Dr. Simon Troon is a research associate on the Australian Research Council Discovery Project that is funding the research attached to the podcast series this year. He does a fantastic job, and I want to say a big thank you, Simon. Your insights, editing, and quality control are appreciated. Our guest for episode 38 is Jules Boykoff, a professor in the Department of Politics and Government at Pacific University in Oregon in the United States. He is also an activist, author, Poet and former professional soccer player who also played for the United States under 23 men's soccer team. Jules is a leading international authority on the Olympics industry, Olympic history, and anti Olympic activism. He is a prolific scholar activist who has authored books such as No Olympians Inside the Fight Against Capitalist Mega Sports in Los Angeles, Tokyo, and Beyond, Power Games A Political History of the Olympics. Activism and the Olympics, Descent at the Games in Vancouver and London, and Celebration Capitalism and the Olympic Games. And all those books come highly recommended to listeners. Jules is also a prolific media and public commentator. For instance, his published commentaries in and around Tokyo 2020 appeared in The Nation, The LA Times, The New York Times, and Jacobin magazines. For further information about Jules and his many activities, I encourage listeners to access his website www.julesboykoff.org and follow him on Twitter at Jules Boykoff. I'll add links to both in the episode notes. Jules, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you and thank you for agreeing to speak with me. Oh, thank you so much, Brett, for the invitation. I'd like to begin just as a way of starting our conversation with a very useful concept that you developed in your 2014 book and is threaded throughout your work on the Olympics and anti-Olympic activism. What is celebration capitalism and what is its connection to the Olympic Games
1: Sure well let me just start by saying that i base my idea of celebration capitalism on the pedestal of the fact that capitalism is a shapeshifter it's constantly shifting forms and i believe the olympics provide a window into its divergent formation so capitalism takes different form depending on political context geography tradition time And so I actually argue that there's a bunch of different actually existing capitalisms playing out simultaneously. And I think to really understand what I mean by celebration capitalism, one must first comprehend disaster capitalism, which comes from the great writer Naomi Klein in her excellent book, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. Klein talks about how capitalists basically capitalize off catastrophe. So when there's a downturn in the economy, a war, a hurricane, you name it. Capitalists swoop in and take advantage of the moment. She talks about there being a state of exception. And what I argue is that the state of exception doesn't always have to be a catastrophe. It can actually be a celebration. What's key in both instances is that in that state of exception, the normal rules of politics don't apply. And so while she argues that the neoliberal capitalists swoop in and basically privatize everything with a pulse, get rid of all these regulations, quote unquote, let the market decide. I argue that with celebration capitalism, something slightly different is going on there. Rather than full throttle privatization, what we see is the public playing a huge role. In fact, the public pays for these Olympic spectacles by and large, and the private entities like corporate sponsors, for example, they sit around and they capitalize off the moment, but it's mostly public money rather than a private kind of thing. Rather than deregulation, there's actually a a really rigid code of regulations around the Olympics, around who can get the contracts, around athletes and their ability to use their own sponsors during the Olympic moment. And so what I basically argue is that you have these public-private partnerships where the public pays and the private entities profit. They're incredibly lopsided public-private partnerships. And this has become endemic to the way that the Olympics are organized. And so it's definitely a a really nice example of how celebration capitalism can happen in the real world when you look at the actual Olympic Games. And just last point on this, I mean, you just need to look at Tokyo for the example. Originally, they were supposed to cost $7.3 billion. But because there was this state of exception where you had to get the Olympics done, you had to have it ready for this global audience. The price tag went through the roof to about $30 billion at the end of the day, nearly $30 billion from 7.3, and everyone just kind of nodded along and paid. And, and you know this happened, of course, in another type of state of exception, which is the coronavirus state of exception. But I guess what I'm arguing is that it's not just the money side, but it's also the security side. So people use the Olympics like their own private cash machine to get all the weapons they'd never be able to get during normal political times. And they do this because of the state of exception. And that's a huge part of celebration capitalism is having huge uh, entities in charge of security. And they don't return that stuff at the end of the games. They keep it and it becomes part of normal policing in the wake of the games. So that's kind of ca- celebration capitalism in a nutshell as it relates to the Olympic Games.
0: Look, it's a really important concept, you know, in ways perhaps you couldn't have anticipated, given the, the strangeness of what happened in Tokyo recently. In the sense that you you saw the the cover of Celebration Capitalism, but occurring during a state of exception caused by a global pandemic. And we were promised, of course, that it wouldn't lead to a a public health disaster in relation to COVID-19. You know, what's your take on what happened in relation to COVID-19, the promises that were made and what ended up happening?
1: Yeah, well, for starters, what we saw in Tokyo was sort of the clash of celebration capitalism and disaster capitalism. When I visited Fukushima in July, 2019, I saw with my own eyes how the the state of exception was being leveraged to uh, privatize the Fukushima prefecture and the affected regions there. At the same time, you had what I was talking about mostly happening in Tokyo, this celebration capitalism. So is this sort of dyad in action as we spoke in very different capitalist dynamics, animating each one of them, I would point out. Now, like you said, Brett, in the lead-in to the Tokyo Olympics, people who were running the games in Tokyo, as well as the International Olympic Committee, was assuring us that everything was gonna be just fine. It wasn't going to advance the disease in any kind of way. And I would say for starters, uh, more than 500 people inside the so-called Olympic bubble Contracted coronavirus at one point, including a bunch of athletes who were not able to participate. They had their Olympic dreams uh, abandoned on the shoals of coronavirus in Tokyo. And, and that was sad for them. But outside of the Olympic bubble, it was even worse. I mean, you saw skyrocketing rates of coronavirus. And if you listen to the doctors in Japan and in, and in Tokyo in particular, they feel by and large, overwhelmingly, that the Olympics contributed to the spike in coronavirus in Tokyo and wider Japan. Basically, what they'll tell you is that the Olympics structured permission to break the the state of emergency rules and, and orders that were in place during the actual Olympics. I mean, let's not forget, Brett, the Olympics happened during a state of emergency in Japan, where people were supposed to be going home at a certain time and not staying out at all hours drinking and Carousing. Well, guess what? Because the Olympics were on, people did just that. Restaurants stayed open later. And Mm -hmm. as a consequence, you saw a lot of people contracting coronavirus. So I think listeners to your show would do well in general to bring a certain amount of healthy skepticism to what the International Olympic Committee and any organizers of Olympic events say. I think that we need to look at the facts on the ground and the facts on the ground from the medical perspective, from the medical community in Japan were overwhelmingly concerned about hosting the Olympics during a pandemic and overwhelmingly believed that in doing so, it actually exacerbated the coronavirus crisis inside of Japan.
0: And it's a particularly um, extreme version of an existing pattern in which, you know, in the lead up to the Games, we often see investigative journalism, coverage of activism, First Nations rights in, in the host countries discussed. But once the the sport starts, the sporting spectacle and the enjoyment and, you know, the sport takes over, what was happening in Tokyo away from the cameras? Because they were trained on spectator-free arenas almost exclusively. So what was happening away from those arenas in terms of anti-Olympic activism and what was happening with the citizens of Tokyo?
1: Yeah, great question. And before I answer it, I would just say that you're absolutely right, Brett, that the typical pattern is that once the games get close to starting and then actually start, the attention from the media in particular tends to zero in on the amazing athletes. I mean, after all, it's the Olympians who very clearly make the Olympics. It's not the organizers of the games. It's not members of the International Olympic Committee. It's the Olympians that make the Olympics special and what they are. But this year, something very different happened. And, you know, I can tell from my own experiences because you read off the titles of my books. I mean, you can tell from the outset that I I bring what I believe to be a healthy skepticism, a criticality to my study of the Olympic Games. And typically, my phone stops ringing, if you will, once the games start, when we hit that moment that you described. Mm -hmm. Well, this time around, absolutely not. I was very busy throughout the entire Olympic Games, and that's because hosting the Olympics during a coronavirus moment, was an obvious gamble with public health, not just inside of Japan, but also outside of Japan as well. After all, you have these people coming from some 200 countries around the world that will be hanging out together and then go back in these tin cans known as airplanes to where they lived in the first place. I mean, it is just a recipe, as the medical professionals were telling us in the, awake, in, the in the advance of the games, for a real public health problem. So my phone kept ringing throughout the games. And also what kept happening, though, to your question throughout the games was, that you had activism in the streets of Tokyo during both the Olympics as well as during the Paralympics. And so you saw these masked people taking all the precautions that one would hope they would, going out to the streets to protest the opening ceremony, for example. There was a writer from the Denver Post who was in Japan to cover the Tokyo Olympics who said for him, that was the most authentic sound that he heard during the opening ceremony was people bellowing from the outside and clamoring for attention to be put toward everyday people in the city instead of this sports spectacle that was about to begin. And you know, credit to these organizers that they kept this thing going throughout the entire Olympics and Paralympics. And one thing that's really different about the, the activists in Tokyo is that they're very linked in to international anti-Olympics activism. In fact, the organizers in Tokyo, which come from two main groups, one's called Hangarin Nokai, and the other is called Okotoa Link, they hosted the first ever transnational anti-Olympic summit in July 2019. I had the good fortune of attending where you had groups come from anti-Olympics groups come from around the world. The Los Angeles contingent was the largest of all, about around 20 people or so. But people came from Paris, from the London Olympics in 2012, from Jakarta, a future possible city of the Olympics, from Pyeongchang in Seoul in nearby South Korea, where they hosted the Olympics somewhat recently. And so you had all these activists converge from around the world, taking lessons and sharing them with each other and talking about how they'd stand with each other in solidarity. And that's one other thing that you saw during these Olympics was activists around the world standing up with the activists in Tokyo whether it was on social media or by carrying out actions in their home cities against the Tokyo Olympics. And so it was a different kind of pushback against the Olympics in Tokyo, just as it was a different kind of Olympics in Tokyo in the first place.
0: And another area of your research deals with the question of environmental concerns and sustainability and the paradox of what might be described as a sustainable global mega event which appears to be a contradiction in terms in some ways. In your mind, you know, the lead up to Tokyo and the way it was promoted, sustainability was a key theme. And the IOC is trying to promote sustainability and reduce carbon emissions while, at least in my mind, serving as a vehicle for corporate greenwashing. What's the state of play in this area in your mind, given the recent release of the IPCC report into catastrophic climate change globally?
1: Yeah, this is such an important question for our moment. How does climate change inform the way the Olympics change? And unfortunately, we haven't seen much change from the International Olympic Committee, the group that oversees the Olympics. They talk a big green game. There's no question about that. And they appear to have hired a, a PR team that really pushes out a lot of public relations on this. But for the most part, the International Olympic Committee's brand of environmentalism is more aspirational than verifiable. Uh, You'll see a lot of future tense that peppers their documents. In the 1990s, that's when the International Olympic Committee started to take environmentalism a little bit more seriously, at least in terms of its rhetoric. But its follow through has long been lacking. You know, I'll give you an example where I lived in Rio de Janeiro in the lead up to the 2016 Summer Olympics. I also lived in London ahead of the 2012 Olympics there. And greenwashing was a big critique in both of those Olympics. So in Rio, one of the promises made by the organizers of those Summer Olympics was that 80% of the water that filtrated into Guanabara Bay, which was this bay that was going to not only host Olympic events, but is also a place where people recreate and is notoriously polluted. 80% 80% of the water entering that bay was supposed to be filtrated. Well, guess what? By the time the games arrived, it was more like 25 26%. I took a boat ride out into Guanabara Bay. I saw dead animals, like large dead animals floating by, a couch floating by. I was with a bunch of tourists, and they were taking photographs and videos of the shoreline, which was beautiful. And I was pointing my camera down toward the water and just like in a ghastly fashion watching what was going by. And so, you know, once the games actually happen, then we still have seen no movement on Guanabara Bay. You know, going back to the 2012 Olympics, I think there was also a a good example of the way the International Olympic Committee moves forward with its brand of sustainability. At that time, they started something called Sustainability Partners. It was like a new little branch of how to be a sponsor of the Olympics. And one of the sponsors, the so-called sustainability sponsors at the 2012 London Olympics, was none other than BP. BP. You know, I'm coming to you from the United States, uh, where they're pretty notorious for hemorrhaging oil into the Gulf of Mexico for many days in a row, and destroying the environment and here they were an environmental sponsor a sustainability sponsor of the Olympics and you know some journalists did a great job digging into that issue of how do you become a sustainability partner for these Olympics? Well, it turns out there were no qualifications whatsoever. You basically had to just pay and then you could play. And that's exactly what BP did. They also had EDF energies, notorious for its nuclear energy programs. And so again, you just see this sort of greenwashing shining through. They have a lot of good PR, but the follow-through is just almost always lacking. And last point is that Tokyo might just be the most greenwashed games ever in the sense that they promised that the Olympics would be the so-called recovery games that would help the areas affected by the triple whammy earthquake tsunami and nuclear meltdown that hit Fukushima Prefecture in March 2011. Well, unfortunately, that did not happen. In fact, people I interviewed when I was in Fukushima in July 2019 were livid about this recovery Olympics slogan. They were telling me that actually the cranes that they desperately needed in Fukushima were being farmed out to Tokyo to get ready for the Olympics. So in other words, the Olympics were actually slowing down the recovery. And so, you know, I think that's just become unfortunately par for the Olympic course. A lot of public relations, some of it quite shiny, and and it sounds really good. But as soon as you start scratching at the surface of that shiny PR and you take a sniff, it's uh, odoriferous, and it's not, I don't mean that in a good way.
0: Now, I'd like to spend a couple of, or a little bit of time just talking about an announcement that was occurred just two days before the start of the Tokyo Games, and it is relevant to where I'm speaking from, which is Australia, of course, which was the announcement of the city of Brisbane in Queensland as the host of the 2032 Olympics and Paralympics, which Offers a really interesting time capsule you know, i suppose in a sense that we we see familiar promises being made i suppose the first question i've got for you about this was why was the host of the 2032 games announced 11 years in advance of the state their're staging that seems like a very long lead time compared to the experience of say 1956 in melbourne or the 2000 games in sydney
1: Right. Well, first, I'll give you the answer that the International Olympic Committee would probably tell you is that they're just looking so far in the future. And they really wanted to have this wonderful host that was all in to do this from Brisbane and that they're reacting to some of the critiques that have come their way for the the overpriced nature of the Olympics. And this is just a way of streamlining costs. That's sort of the official line. The reality is actually quite different the truth of the matter is that fewer and fewer cities are keen to host the Olympic games. And because of that, the international Olympic committee through a major hail Mary pass, if you will, in 2017, when they allotted both the 2024 Olympics to Paris and the 2028 Olympics to Los Angeles. The reason why I mentioned that is because what we saw for those Olympics was all these bid cities just dropping out one after the other between 2013 and 2018, more than a dozen cities that were thinking about the Olympics decided against it for a variety of reasons, including the greenwashing you're talking about, the cost that we've been talking about, and so on. And so they established a pattern in Los Angeles, giving them the games 11 years in advance. And because so few cities were keen, the International Olympic Committee decided to sort of create a new process. Well, guess what? John Coates of Australia, the big honcho in charge of the Australian Olympic Committee, who was also the Coordination Commission head of the Tokyo Olympics and who's been around the block in Australian politics and uh, Olympics politics for sure over the years. I'm sure your listeners in Australia will be well aware of this individual. He helped outline the process and then guess what? Brisbane gets the gets the uh, successful bid in, in, for the Olympics in 2032. And so that's kind of the, the basic background is that's what they'll tell you. But they're trying to lock these bids in as whenever they can basically now because you have seen these anti-Olympics groups that we were talking about before crop up in each and every Olympic city, and it's torpedoed a number of bids across the world. And so the International Olympic Committee has adjusted in that way and is now apparently doling out Olympics without even a competitive bidding process, and certainly without any chance for people in the city to have a vote on whether they want to host the Olympics now some 11 years in advance. And, you know, when the conservative prime minister promises to The International Olympic Committee, the conservative prime minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, promises this. They're going to basically be the fiscal backstop for these games. That should give a lot of people pause in Australia. When you think about this important study that came out from the University of Oxford, that every single Olympic Games going back to 1960, every single one for which there is reliable data at our hands, every one has gone over budget. And you've got the prime minister promising to cover those cost overruns. So, And he's not going to do it with his own private money. I'll tell you that. He's going to do it with taxpayer money. That is definitely the trend. So there's a whole lot going on behind that decision to give the Brisbane people the bid uh, for the Olympics, giving them the actual Olympics 11 years in advance.
0: And it's kind of interesting at the level that both the prime minister and the premier of Queensland, Palaszczuk won't be in office, I dare say, by 2032. And it really sets up a familiar story in that, and this is, you know, your your experience of watching bid cities around the world and, and cities then rejecting the games is really important um, because all sorts of promises are being made. They're familiar to me as someone who follows these things closely, but may not be as familiar to our listeners. And that, you know, everything from the cost effectiveness and the benefits of the games to the fact it will Improved sporting participation rates among the children of Brisbane, Queensland and Australia. We're seeing all these things, familiar promises made and they happen in the lead up to most games. In terms of if you look at the record of the past 20 years, which you've detailed in many of your books, what's the reality of then? what tends to happen? Why should we be skeptical about these promises?
1: Well, for starters, I think you've put your finger on a really important element of all this, the what I call in my work, the democracy deficit that very much undergirds the Olympics. Because you pointed out, Brett, and rightly so, that a lot of the elected officials who agree to host the Olympics or to fund them, be the fiscal backstop for the games, are long gone by the time the actual Olympics roll around. So there's really no accountability for those folks. They've moved on to, to different territories. And so, you know, the truth of the matter is there is a large chasm between the promises that are made in the Olympic bids. And the actual follow-through with the actual Olympic Games. It's sad, but true. You can look at city after city and go back to their bid books and, and look at the grand promises that were made. And then look at the fact that the, like I said, with Rio in the water, the actual follow-through is all too often lacking. And that is exactly why you have this upturn of uh, this upsurge of activism against the games. It's in part because of what we've been talking about with the overspending. But it's also because of the false promises that we've seen at Olympics after Olympics. That's definitely now the pattern. I mean, look at London. If you want to look at participation in sports in the wake of an Olympics that in a place that's kind of similar in some ways to um, what we might see in Brisbane in terms of, um, you know, English speaking and so on and, you know, developed society and, and whatnot. You heard those same promises about this big surge in participation in sport in the wake of London. Well, those promises didn't materialize. They might have a tiny bump right as the Olympics approach, but the studies that have been done afterwards certainly haven't supported that. And I think that is why, for me, getting everyday people a chance to vote on whether they want to actually host the Olympic Games in their town is a necessity. And it really should be an integral part, a necessary part, a mandatory part of every single Olympic bid. Because as I've said, for too long, there's been a democracy deficit. And if the International Olympic Committee and local bidders truly care about the local population, well, then they should be jumping up and down at the opportunity to give that local population a chance to vote on whether they want to host the Olympics. They should be jumping up and down at the opportunity to make their argument in the public Because nothing sharpens the arguments around the Olympics quite like having a vote on them. This really helps us air out the kind of things that you and I are talking about now in large public forums that informs the public. And, you know, if the people at Brisbane at the end of the day hear about these patterns that you and I have been talking about, and they still, a majority of them, say, you know what, we're okay with that. We're willing to take the risk with taxpayer money. And we know that the promises don't always happen, but we want to have the Olympics and, you know, we're going to do it. And if majority said that, hey, who would I be this guy from Portland, Oregon, to tell the people of Brisbane, no, if they actually did take a a vote on it. But the problem is they're not going to take a vote on it. They didn't get a chance to take a vote on it. And instead, the elites that run sport in Australia and the elected officials that we've been talking about decided for them. And that kind of paternalism really isn't democratic practice, and I think the Olympics could use a whole lot more democratic practice and a whole lot less paternalism.
0: Now, at this early stage, you know, are you? I, mean, I know you, the No Olympians group in LA and other activist groups around the world. Has is, is it been any movement or contact with groups in Brisbane or discussion that you're aware of? My understanding is that those connections are
1: being made. Um, There's an active group in Sydney that was providing solidarity support for a lot of what was happening in Tokyo. And of course, as you'll know, um, Sydney hosted the Olympics in 2000. So there's like a long history of people that were involved and saw with their own two eyes what happened there. And uh, so, yes, I believe from my contacts inside of No Olympics LA and also in Tokyo and beyond Tokyo in Japan, there are connections being made right now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens.
0: Look, uh, and just a a final question, looking forward to next year instead of 2032 and the the winter games in Beijing, there's, you know, we we understand the politics and um, the the political sort of control uh, and security control that occurs in China, but there's been talks of boycotts because of the mass incarceration of Uyghurs in concentration camps in Xinjiang. You know, What's your take on this shocking situation? Would boycotts make any difference? What does it say about the Olympic movement and its willingness to be hosted in in China? You're obviously having a lot of discussion in these areas.
1: Yeah, well, I would encourage your listeners whenever they hear the word boycott, and I think you're right, we're going to be hearing it a lot over the coming months here as we get closer and closer to Beijing. Whenever they hear the word boycott, they should ask for clarification as to what The boycott is, is it an athlete boycott, a full throttle athlete say no to the Olympics and they don't go because they're concerned with the human rights situation in Xinjiang province or the treatment of people in Hong Kong or the long term treatment of people in Tibet, or are we talking about some sort of diplomatic boycott where the high-level officials from your country do not go to the Olympics as a form of protest against what's happening in those regions that I mentioned? Or are we talking about an economic boycott where you don't support the country that's hosting the Olympics uh, with your your dollars, so you sort of vote with your dollars? I think that what we're not going to probably see is an uh, athlete-driven boycott Of the Beijing Games. We have seen, I think, a really important increase in organizing among Olympians, groups like Global Athlete, uh, groups like the International Swimmers Alliance, uh, groups inside of track and field that are doing really serious and important organizing. Um, But I think that a lot of times, you know, these winter sports aren't quite there yet, as with the summer sports that I mentioned. And I just don't see an athlete boycott, an athlete led boycott happening. We look back you know, at the 1980s a lot of times when we think about these boycotts, whether it was the Moscow Games or the Los Angeles Games in 1980 and 1984, respectively, and a lot of those athletes who missed out on those Olympics have been pretty vociferous in their disagreement with having politicos make that decision for them, and they've really laid down a strong track record of dissent against that kind of athlete boycott as decided by politicians. So I'd be personally kind of surprised to see that. I know prediction is very tricky business, especially inside of a pandemic moment like the one we're living in right now. But I don't see that necessarily happening. But you know, the fact of the matter is, what's happening inside of China very much clashes with the principles that are enshrined in the Olympic charter about rights and freedom and so on. And beyond that, the International Olympic Committee was fully aware of this. You could perhaps, if you're in incredibly generous mood, you could perhaps forgive them back in 2001 when they handed the 2008 Summer Olympics to Beijing Because after all, people in Beijing, including the deputy mayor of Beijing, were promising that if Beijing were granted the Olympics, it would bring this big democratic heyday to the population, a human rights heyday. And of course, nothing of the sort happened. And if you listen to people like Sophie Richardson, who's the director of the China program at Human Rights Watch, She argues that, in fact, hosting the 2008 Olympics was a catalyst for further human rights abuses in the country. The IOC knows this, and yet they handed the 2015 Olympics to a known human rights violator, and they should get a lot of flack for that. And I think they will get a lot of flack for that the closer that we get to these games.
0: Yeah, it's an, a difficult moment, given the realities of a global pandemic, followed by the possibility of a Games occurring in that sort of context. And I, I personally, I find it confounding that the IAC claims observer status of the United Nations. Um, you know, are you aware of any sort of discussion around that, that contradiction?
1: Well, I think among scholars, critical scholars, absolutely, among activist groups, there's people that are pointing out that contradiction. But, you know, we have these groups that you might think could impose some measure of accountability on the International Olympic Committee. Groups like uh, the UN, like you're pointing to, or the World Health Organization. We see them time and again uh, laying prostrate in front of the desires of the International Olympic Committee. I mean, just look at the way that the World Health Organization turned the other way during the coronavirus moment and allowed the International Olympic Committee to have its way and have its Olympics in Tokyo. I mean, it's kind of breathtaking when you think about it and you think about the medical professionals around the world that were against it. And yet, here's the WHO saying, kind of saying, you know, it's fine. And so, You're pointing to the the big problem with the International Olympic Committee, and that is there's no one there to impose accountability on them. And this is the big question that people, whether they're scholars, activists, journalists, or whomever, human rights workers, they've been trying to figure out, like, how do you actually corral the IOC? They're kind of become like a rogue organization that essentially does what it wants. And no one is out here, certainly not you and I can try to impose any kind of measure of direct accountability. And that's very much what this organization needs.
0: And look, Jules, I just want to say thank you for continuing to ask the big questions and, and investigate those who are resisting those sort of forces of power. And I'm really looking forward to following your activism and scholarship as we head towards the Winter Games and Paris in 24.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Brett, for the opportunity. I really admire your work, and I'm grateful to have this chance to speak with you. Thank you.